joined us this morning. Thank you so much for being a part of our worship service together. Something to think about because of the distress that we're in, everybody you know is dealing with a sense of loss. Everybody you know has lost something, maybe a lot of somethings. People have lost wages, they've lost their jobs, some have lost their health, some have lost contact with loved ones, some have lost their loved ones. We're dealing with the loss of our routines and schedules and ability to go and to be out among people. We're dealing with the loss of normalcy. And one of the most frequently heard questions right now is, when will things get back to normal? Everybody we know right now, including ourselves, is dealing with a sense of loss. There are opportunities in that. I want us to consider this morning, though, what it means to lose one's soul. Because Jesus brought this up. All losses can be painful and can be difficult. They don't go away easily. Just because we lose something doesn't mean that we, quote unquote, get over it. But to lose one's soul, that's a real tragedy. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, you can open your Bibles there if you like. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return or exchange for his soul? Jesus had a sense of priorities and values like nobody else who's ever lived because Jesus could see the big picture of our existence. He knew that this world is not all there is. He knows that we're going to spend eternity somewhere. And when Jesus wanted to talk about loss and value, he talked about souls. When you read this verse, you get a couple of ideas just right off the bat that Jesus wants us to com contemplate. The first is that when we attempt to gain the world, we're going to lose our soul. Attempting to gain the world, to have the things of this world, if that's what I'm all about, if that's what my motives and desires center upon, I'm going to lose my soul. If that's the way I choose to live my life, no one can serve two masters. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. But a second implication from Jesus' statement is that once a soul is lost, nothing that I or you possess can be given in exchange. Even the world itself is not enough to pay for a soul. Not your soul, not my soul. A soul is tremendously valuable. It's precious. What about losing a soul? Three things I want us to do with our study this morning together. I want us to spend some time, first of all, talking about what a soul is. What does the Bible have to say about this word, this, this phrase that Jesus uses? What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What is a soul? Secondly, this morning, we're going to spend some time contemplating what makes a soul so valuable. And then third, what gain would we have if we sought after the world? What does the world really have to offer us? Those three questions can help us to get a perspective that we need. 
when we're dealing with a sense of loss. In the first place this morning, spend some time with me contemplating this question, what is a soul? Again, Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26, a man possesses a soul. So what is a soul? When you read scripture, there are at least three ways that you find the word soul being used. As we introduce this idea of a soul, you'll find it being used in at least three different distinct ways. In the first place, the word soul can be used just to describe a person. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, when Peter was writing about Noah and his family being saved, it says that eight souls were saved. Peter's not talking about the immaterial part of Noah and his family. He's talking about their lives. And so we still use that kind of terminology today, especially when it comes to people that are at sea, people that are uh, speaking about maritime affairs. A lot of times a captain who goes down with the ship or the the ship is lost will say something like this, 8,000 souls or 3,000 souls were lost in the tragedy that occurred. So it's used to describe someone's entire personhood. Secondly, the word soul is used to describe life itself. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says that God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and man became a living soul, the King James translation has. And the word there has been rightly pointed out in Hebrew. It refers not to an immaterial part of man. It refers to life itself, because the same term in Hebrew that's used to describe a man in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, is also used to describe the life of animals. So a living soul, life itself, that idea is used when we read the word soul in the Bible. And so you need to make sure that the context you're using really supports what you're trying to say about soul. But there's a third way in which the word soul is used. It's what we find in Matthew 16, 26. It describes the immaterial. That means it's not made of matter, of atoms. It's immaterial, and it's a part of man, and it relates to God. A soul is not made of the stuff of this universe. A soul is different. It's immaterial. It's invisible. You've never seen a soul and neither have I, but we can know with a, with a certainty that we possess a soul because God's word tells us this. Sometimes the word soul is interchangeable with the word spirit in scripture. And again, not always. Sometimes the word spirit can be used in your English translation to describe someone's attitude. Sometimes the word spirit can be used to describe the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. And so just because you see the word spirit doesn't mean that it's necessarily interchangeable with the word soul, but you get the idea. The word soul, while it may have different uses throughout Scripture, especially for our purposes this morning, describes the immaterial part of man that relates to God. As you think about this, let me give some sustaining evidence that this is a consistent way in which the Bible uses the word soul. Sometimes it describes the whole person, sometimes it describes life itself, but there is a sense in which there's a part of man that's invisible. And the word soul is used to describe that. The Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit. That's the type of being that he is. That is, he is immaterial. He's not made of stuff, of matter, like every other being that we are familiar with or have seen. 
The Bible further says that man is made in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. And the Bible tells us that man is the offspring of God, Acts chapter 17, verse 29. All of these principles combined together lead us to the conclusion that God, who is spirit, has made man who is also essentially spirit. Even though we are bodies joined with a spirit or a soul, we are made in the image of God. We are the offspring of God. A number of passages. Genesis chapter 35, verse 18, when Rachel was giving birth to Benjamin, the Bible says, as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Rachel was losing her life. What happens when somebody dies? The scripture indicates in a number of places that one's soul or one's spirit leaves their body at the time of death. James 2.26, Genesis 35, verse 18. In Luke chapter 12, verse 20, the rich fool, he was storing up possessions for himself and not giving any thought to his soul. And God spoke to him and said, you are a fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? There's something about that man that was going to last forever, but it wasn't his possessions. It wasn't his barns and his crops. His soul was what he should have been paying attention to. In Acts 2 verse 27, speaking of Jesus, the prophet wrote, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy ones see corruption. What that means there in Acts 2.27 is that when Jesus died on the cross, his soul went to, the Bible says, the Hadean realm, the realm where departed spirits, departed souls exist. And then Jesus was raised from the dead. His soul returned to his body. His body did not see corruption according to that prophecy. He was in the tomb just three days. And so Jesus possesses, according to this scripture, a soul. In Acts chapter 9, verse 37, this is fascinating. Dorcas, Tabitha, a lady who was a member of the early church, she died. And the Bible says she, when she died, they washed her, talking about her physical body, and they laid her in an upper room. But then just two verses later, the Bible goes on to say about Dorcas, they've got her body, think about this, laying on this bed in an upper room, and they're mourning over her. And the Bible says in Acts 9, verse 39, just two verses later, that when Peter comes, they show her the garments and the tunics that she's made. And then it says she had made those garments while she was with them. Acts 9, verse 39. So there's her body laying on that bed in the upper room, but she's not with them anymore. What happened? Her soul departed her body. All that they were looking at was the empty shell of Dorcas. Her soul was somewhere else. Continuing, as you think about what is a soul, it's the immaterial part of man, not made of matter, that relates to God. In Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus turned to the thief on the cross and he said this, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if I read the rest of the passage and other accounts, I notice that those two individuals died on those crosses. The thief died, the Lord died. Their bodies were taken down from those crosses and they were put in tombs. At least Jesus' body was. So how is it that Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise? Jesus is speaking about their spirit, about their soul. 
There's a part of man that is immaterial that goes somewhere when we leave this life, when we leave this body. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, John the prophet saw a vision of martyrs under the throne of God. And notice how he describes it. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So here are some people who've been martyred for the gospel's sake. And John sees their souls prophetically through Revelation under the throne of God. There is a part of you and a part of me that's not made of matter, but it's who you are. It makes up what we are. And that's the part of us that leaves when we die, leaves this body. As you think about the question, what is a soul? The fact that we possess a soul ought to lead us to this follow-up question. When I read Matthew 16, 26, Jesus is asking a value question. He says, what will it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The question for our contemplation then is this, what makes a soul so valuable? Why does Jesus say it's so precious? You know, a lot of times we'll see maybe in a museum an artifact and we'll see it behind a glass display case and unless there's a lot of security around the artifact or if there's a guard maybe standing there nearby, you and I might look at that artifact and we might not really think it's all that valuable. But because of its rarity, because of how precious it is, because of the materials of which it's made, that artifact might be priceless. You know, sometimes people might have an improper estimate of the soul and its value. Jesus wants us to think about and to remember how valuable a soul is how valuable your soul is. What makes it so? In the first place, a soul is valuable because of the divine nature of its origin. Where do souls come from in the first place? They come from God and from no other. The fact that God made it means it's valuable, it's precious. The fact that only God can make it means that it's valuable and precious. Who else could create a soul besides Almighty God? He made you, he made your soul, and he made the souls of everybody else who's living on this planet right now. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, the wise man writes, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. God gives human beings a soul, a spirit. He's the creator. Over in Hebrews 12, verse 9, the Hebrews writer says this, We had earthly fathers who disciplined us as we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to, notice how he calls God, the father of spirits and live? Why is a soul valuable? It's valuable because God created souls. He is the only one who can create a soul. While I'm on this subject, let me just make a a note. In debates about abortion and about the ethics of what we do with children that are in the womb, we must of necessity remember the value of a soul. We must of necessity remember that when an embryo comes into existence, that that child immediately is given a soul by God. God's the creator. And there are severe and drastic implications for how we treat unborn children. The divine nature of their origin 
demands that. They are precious. They are valuable. God has regard for an unborn child, and therefore the people who respect God's will ought to also have a regard for those things. Secondly, why is a soul so valuable? Because of the price that was paid for its redemption. Notice the passage that Jesus gave us in Matthew 16, 26 again. Even the whole world, if you put it in the balance, could not pay for one soul. What kind of currency can you use to purchase a soul? If you had all the money that Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or any of the billionaires living in this world, if you had all their money and you could stack it all up and if you took all the money from everybody, it still could not purchase even one soul. Why is a soul valuable? Because the currency used to purchase souls is the blood of Christ. Peter says this very thing in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, he says, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Those things can't purchase you. Those things can't ransom your soul. But you were purchased with, watch this, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is saying to us that your soul has been purchased. It's been paid for by the only currency that could do it, the blood of Christ. There's only one person who could ever die for you. He has done the work. Will you put your trust in him? Your soul is valuable. It's that precious to God. When we think about why a soul is so valuable, think about the value that Jesus himself pronounces upon it. Jesus went to the cross, not so that people wouldn't get sick anymore, not so that people wouldn't die anymore. Jesus went to the cross to purchase people's souls, to ransom them from sin. Parallel passage to Matthew 16, 26 is Mark 8, 36 and 37. What does it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus wants us to think about how valuable our souls are. Why is a soul so valuable? Scripture indicates that our souls are used to worship God. Now again, we're kind of broadening the idea of what a soul is, but when you look at Scripture and what it says, it has passages like this in the Old Testament. In Psalm 103 verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Worship is not just this external ritual and rite, but it is from the soul, it's from the heart, it's from the spirit that we offer praises and sacrifices and tribute to God. We worship God with our soul, with our spirit. In John 4, 24, again, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. At least part of what Jesus means in that passage is that we are to worship sincerely from the heart, from the soul. We use our souls in worship, in honor, and praise of God. Why is a soul so valuable? Number five, because the Bible says it lasts forever. Everything else you've got is going to perish one day, but not your soul. Your soul is the part of you that is eternal in its duration. Jesus taught the parable of the sheep and the goats, and at the, er, excuse me, the par, yeah, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, at the end of that parable, he said, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Jesus spoke about eternal existence for the wealth, for the good, for the evil, for the wealthy, for the poor. Doesn't matter what we were like in our lives, we're going to spend eternity somewhere. Our souls are eternal in nature. When you stop and think about what's valuable in this world, things that are durable, things that last, cars that are reliable, people will pay a lot more money for than cars that have a reputation for being unreliable. Things that are durable, they're valuable. Your soul was built by God, was created by God to last forever. Therefore, it is the most precious thing you possess. Question number three this morning. As we think about the value of a soul, this question really ought to cause us to stop and reflect. What gain, going back to Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 26, does this world really have to offer? What does this world really have to give you? What can it really provide? So much so that you would exchange your soul for these things. I want you to consider four ideas with me. In the first place, this world, for all of its promises, for all of the hope that it holds out to people, it cannot ever really deliver on its promises. Just can't. The scripture says in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11, after Solomon had tried everything the world promises and the world has to offer, Solomon came to this conclusion. He said, it was all vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see that word gained? I wonder if Jesus wasn't thinking about Ecclesiastes when he said what he said in Matthew 16, 26. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? This world cannot and will not deliver on its promises. Get that through your head. Get that into your heart. The things that you think are going to satisfy you, that you think are going to complete you, that are going to make you happy and fulfilled, those things this world can never really provide. It cannot deliver on its promises. What do we gain if we pursue the world? We gain a harsh taskmaster. You know, some employers are easier to work for than others. Some people are kinder and more thoughtful to their employees than others are. But I want you to know that if you pursue the world, if you pursue what life holds out for you, you are following and working for a harsh taskmaster. In Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, he goes into the far country, he leaves his father's house, at least his father loved him, at least his father provided for him and cared about him, and even if the son didn't behave the way that he should have, his father still would have given him something in his distress. But when this prodigal son went to the far country, the Bible says he got so hungry he was longing to be fed with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. When we put ourselves in pursuit of the world, we gain a harsh taskmaster. This world is never going to love you in the sense that your heavenly Father loves you. It's never going to want your best in the sense that your heavenly Father wants what's best for you. What are you really pursuing when you pursue this world? In 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, Timothy writes about people who want to be rich in the things of this world. And watch his words. Listen to the idea that when we try to pursue riches, we're following after a harsh taskmaster. 
He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Listen to his words. Don't think that you're the exception to the rule or that somehow these principles don't apply to you. When this is what you're about and this is what you pursue, this is the end result. When you're all about money and things and stuff and that's what you're desiring and that's what you're trying to gain, there's nothing down that path except for ruin and destruction and piercing yourself through with many sorrows. That's not my words. Those are God's words telling you that. What are you really trying to pursue and gain if you gain the whole world? When we gain the world, what does it really have to offer? think about this, everything the world offers is perishable. It doesn't last. In 1 John 2, 17, John says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We need to remember the perishable nature of all the things and the stuff that people are so concerned about. Did you hear this week about the volunteer fireman up in Indiana who got $8 million deposited into his bank account. He went to the bank and he was trying to withdraw some money and see if his stimulus check had arrived. And lo and behold, when he withdrew $200, the news report said that his balance read $8.2 million. It became a news sensation this week. And somebody was interviewing him on the afternoon of that same day and his balance had been corrected. Whatever entity deposited $8.2 million had withdrawn that $8.2 million by the end of the day. And the firefighter said something I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, this morning I was a millionaire. And then he, with a laugh, he said, that didn't last. I'm broke again. Everything this world offers is perishable. The Proverbs writer says it this way in Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. We think about the stock markets and the 401ks and the nest eggs that people have been storing up for years and the promises that have been made based on profits and, and, and returns and dividends and things like that. And a lot of people are dealing with a sense of loss, aren't they? What the Proverbs writer said is true. The things of this world are perishable. They make wings like an eagle and they fly away. What gain does this world really have to offer? Everything this world offers you must be left behind. The rich fool in Luke 12 verse 20 again, this night your soul is required of you. The things that you've prepared, the stuff that you've stored up, it's a rhetorical question. Whose will they be? Why have you stored up more than what you need? Why have you spent all your time and energy emphasizing these things to the exclusion and at the expense of your soul that's going to be required of you? Why are you putting all your effort into things that don't last and must be left behind one day? Jesus wants you to think about his words what will it really profit if you gain everything this world has to offer but lose your own soul? And Jesus, when he went to the cross, died specifically 
to purchase your soul. He died so that your soul would not have to endure the stain of sin, so that your soul could live and abide with him for all eternity. Jesus died so that you could be purified and cleansed from sins that stain and sicken the soul. When we think about what Jesus calls us to do, the Bible is abundantly clear. Because our souls need to be cleansed, we should first believe in him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life. He ransomed souls. Put your trust in Jesus and repent of your sin. The Bible teaches that when we come to him, we turn away from the wicked, ungodly lifestyles that we've been living. We turn away from the things that displease him. We confess him, Romans 10, verse 10, and then the scripture says, by being baptized in water for the remission of our sins, we are putting on Christ, Galatians 3, verse 27. As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What's it going to profit you? You might lose a lot of things during this really difficult time in human history. Others around you are losing things as well. But what's it going to profit you if you try to hold on to some things, if you try to recover some things, to regain, but you lose your soul? Has any of this been worth it? Has your life been a success? Don't lose your soul. Obey the gospel. There are emails on the screen beside me. If you have questions or would like to talk further about these matters, please get in contact with us. We'd love to visit with you more. Let's sing a song and reflect on Jesus' question. And let's reflect on what we're really pursuing right now in our lives.